Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to Portside, on February 21st, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, led by recently elected civil rights attorney Larry Krasner, announced that the city had begun a bail reform initiative. The cash bail system disproportionately affects low-income people who are removed from their families, jailed before a trial, and lose their jobs because they're unable to pay. It imprisons people with minor infractions of the law who are too poor to pay for their freedom. Currently, over a thousand people are locked up in Philadelphia jails because they didn't pay bail. Now that city prosecutors will stop demanding monetary payments for low-level crimes, those people might have the opportunity for release from incarceration. It's too early to determine how many of Philadelphia's inmates will attempt to have their bail amounts thrown out. Since judges have the final say on whether a prisoner is released, at this point, it's hard to determine how many of those inmates will be released. Last week, we mentioned that Konstantinos Yatsalu was on hunger strike and had been kidnapped from his cell in Greece by a SWAT team. We've since received this encouraging report. Quote, According to Athens Indie Media, Konstantinos Yatsalu will end his hunger and thirst strike after the Prison Transfer Committee met on Friday, March 2nd, and accepted his demand for transfer to Cordalis Prison, which will be made effective on April 10th. The comrade, who is accused of belonging to the conspiracy Cells of Fire, was on hunger strike starting February 21st and thirst strike since February 25th, demanding his permanent transfer to Cordalis Prison so he could be near his family and friends. There is no doubt that the offensive solidarity actions carried out by comrades in Greece, both inside and outside the prisons, was an element of important pressure for the decision that was finally made in Konstantinos' favor." Unquote. These actions included demonstrations, occupations of political party offices, blockades in the streets of Thessaloniki and inside Korodalos prison, and nighttime attacks on banks, luxury stores, and government offices. According to the online magazine Reason, President Trump has nominated William Otis, a former prosecutor and current Georgetown Law School adjunct professor, to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Otis is a vocal opponent of the commission and once called for its termination. The commission is an independent bipartisan agency within the judiciary that's responsible for establishing federal sentencing guidelines. Otis is also a vocal opponent of attempts to abolish mandatory minimum sentences and mass incarceration. In 2014, he said, quote, Two facts about crime and sentencing dwarf everything else we've learned for the last 50 years. When we have more prison, we have less crime. And when we have less prison, we have more crime. Unquote. Julie Stewart, founder of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, said Otis has been wrong repeatedly and that experience has shown that, for example, since passage of the Fair Sentencing Act, the crime rate, prison population, and crack use have all decreased. Fake Flu Quarantine Equals Real Lockdown in Michigan Prisons by Rand W. Gould with assistance of Charles Edward Atiba Bomani Payton, February 7, 2018. Prisoners on the west side of Chippewa Correctional Facility at Kinchilla, Michigan have been locked down since January 30, 2018. Eight men crammed into a cubicle designed for four in old mold-infested cattle barns containing approximately 320 men each, sick and healthy alike under the guise of a quarantine for the influenza virus epidemic that has spread throughout North America and the world. 
Thanks in great part to the overbreeding of animals, particularly turkeys, chickens, and hogs, and cramming them into similar cattle barns, which serve as incubators for viruses that cross over from animals to humans, as well as profit-making machines for the masters. Being on lockdown means we have no yard, no programs, no GED classes, no visitors, and the chow hall is run one unit at a time. However, this is not a quarantine as both sick and healthy prisoners remain crammed together in these cattle barns with no attempt made by the administration to separate the sick from the healthy. As I write this, I can hear coughing and sneezing all around me. Nevertheless, prisoners from all units report to work together in the chow hall and at the Michigan State Industries factory. Moreover, prisoners are still being transferred from one prison to another, whether those prisons are quarantined or not, and many are, including the east side of Chippewa and nearby Kinross Correctional Facility. So it's business as usual for the Michigan Department of Corrections, MDOC, fake quarantine or not. Quarantine would require sick prisoners to be separated, i.e. quarantine from the healthy ones, either in a segregation unit or a regular unit or wing, by moving the healthy prisoners out and the sick prisoners in. This is not what is happening at Chippewa. Instead, we're all being locked out in these old, overcrowded cattle barns, passing the flu virus back and forth in a potentially deadly game of catch, the equivalent of keeping both sick and healthy children in school together instead of sending the sick ones home. A real quarantine would require the MDOC to actually care about its prisoners and make an effort to separate the sick from the healthy. Caring and effort are things the MDOC, unfortunately, has proven itself incapable of over the years. The MDOC couldn't even be bothered to keep their sick employees home, which is how the flu virus got inside its prisons in the first place. Especially up north, where visits are rare and perpetually short-staffed prisons due to low wages lead to employees working as much as they can, including overtime, to get by. All the MDOC is really interested in doing is creating the illusion they're doing the job taxpayers pay them $2 billion a year to do. In other words, they stand around leaning on brooms and shovels and only pretend to use them when someone is looking. Ho Chi Minh said long ago, open the gates of prison and the dragon will fly out. Although I don't think he ever suspected the dragon would be the next Spanish flu virus, or worse, that was incubated inside America's prisons. This week, we share a conversation we had with Andrea Ritchie, an attorney and activist whose work focuses on police violence against the queer community and women of color. She speaks about current political conditions and the concepts in her most recent book, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. Richie walks us through some of the different ways that women of color are disproportionately attacked and criminalized by police. She speaks of police violence against mothers and pregnant women and shares the stories of some specific women who've been harmed by the police. Finally, Richie talks to us about some of the positive organizing she's seeing in respect to issues of police violence against black women and women of color. Here she is. I am a black woman, a lesbian, an immigrant, a survivor of violence, and someone whose work has focused in multiple forms over the past 20 years on profiling, policing, and criminalization of Black women, women of color, LGBTQ people of color, trying to figure out, one, how to make those stories more visible or invisible no more, which is the title of my latest book, and how to interrupt the cycles of state and interpersonal violence that um, affect the lives of Black women and LGBTQ folks. So the full title of the book is Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. It's a book about racial profiling. It's a book about police brutality. It's a book about criminalization. It's a book about mass incarceration and mass detention, but examined through the lens of women's experiences, which is not usually the way that we look at these issues. And when we do that, we find that if we look more closely where we're already looking, 
women are experiencing the kinds of police violence that we're used to seeing, whether we're talking about stop and frisk, which was a big issue in New York City or Chicago or larger cities, or physical violence, including fatal violence. In fact, a study just came out of Washington University in St. Louis that found that when you looked at the numbers of women killed by police, not only were black women disproportionately killed by police, but they were the group for whom the greatest proportion of police killings took place when the person was unarmed. So over 60% of killings of black women took place when they were unarmed. And so what the study concluded was that the false perception of threat is greatest when it comes to black women. But those are the things that you wouldn't normally see if you weren't looking carefully to examine what black women or women's experiences of policing look like. Similarly, in Ferguson, the year before Mike Brown was killed, the group of people who were stopped by police most frequently, who had the most frequent traffic stops, were black women more than any other group. If we look where we're already looking, we look at stop and frisk numbers in New York City, for instance, if you analyze the numbers in such a way as to make women's experiences visible, which we don't usually do. We do sort of men versus women and blacks versus whites, and we don't disaggregate those two. And we do it that way. Black women and women of color's experiences are not visible. But when we disaggregate by both race and gender, you see that rates of racial disparities in stops of women are identical to rates of racial disparities in stops of men. And that's not just true in New York City, it's true across the country. So that's what you see where you, if we look more closely, we're already looking. And there's actually an Oscar-nominated short documentary called Traffic Stop that's about Breon King, who was stopped, pulled over in a traffic stop just a few weeks before Sandra Bland's fatal traffic stop and just a few hundred miles south in Austin. And you just see this physical violence caught on camera of her being flung around on the ground, subjected to very similar, kind of thrown over the hood of a car, the police car, in very similar ways to black men. And when she asked the officer in the back of the car, basically why she was treated this way, the officer tells her is because black people have violent tendencies. And he's saying this to a hundred pound school teacher who's, you know, not to engage the politics of respectability, but who's literally never had a previous encounter with the criminal legal system. And so, and certainly never been accused of violence or violent tendencies. And so it just shows the depth with which these perceptions apply also to black women in ways that we're not used to thinking about. And then the other thing that the book asks us to do is to expand our lens beyond you know, looking at fatal police violence as kind of the gold standard of like, what is police violence or physical violence? And if we do that, then we start to see other forms of violence that women experience, and black women, women of color, indigenous women, particularly experience more, which is sexual violence by police officers. So we're in the middle of this national conversation about sexual harassment, sexual extortion, sexual assault. And there's this particular group of people who exercise tremendous amounts of power over people in their everyday lives. They have the power to literally kill them, beat them, arrest them, put them in situations where they could lose their housing, their job, their children, everything, be deported. I would say more power than Harvey Weinstein, right? (laughs) Or even a member of Congress. And their acts of sexual assault and extortion and violence kind of remain shrouded in silence in this conversation in the same ways that sexual violence in prisons um, and the fact that prisons, in fact, are sexual violence remains shrouded in silence in this conversation. So that's a form of police violence that becomes more visible once we expand our lens beyond kind of the folks that we normally look at. So that's basically what the book is about. And looking also at the policing of motherhood, looking at how police responses to violence and calls for assistance by people with disabilities or people in any kind of crisis reflects many of the same patterns of racial profiling and threat perception that 
characterize kind of day-to-day encounters and lead, for instance, police response to domestic violence to be a primary site of sexual violence by police officers, sexual harassment by police officers, and fatal violence by police officers. So Aura Rosser, for instance, in Ann Arbor, was killed within seconds of police responding to a domestic violence call because they perceived her not potentially as a victim, potentially as someone who could be in need of assistance, but as a threat uh, to the officer and and described her in terms that were very similar to the ter- ways in which Mike Brown was described, which is something that was pointed out by the folks in Ann Arbor for Black Lives who did a lot of organizing around her work so, or her life. And you know, responses to people with disabilities are very much characterized by by violence. That's a sort of primary site that black women like Charlena Lyles um, experience fatal or physical violence by police officers and so forth. And the book sort of throughout doesn't just sort of point to the problem, but talks about the kinds of organizing people have been doing for a long time, long before the kind of more recent attention to police violence against black women or indigenous women or immigrant women kind of in the last couple of years, but that there's been organizing going on around those cases since the civil rights movement, since before the civil rights movement, since Ida B. Wells, since the period of of slavery and um, and colonization. And so just really also lifting up that resistance that's been going on throughout, because that's also been invisible. It's taken place sort of in the shadows of this larger movements for racial justice and police accountability. And so making sure that that also becomes more visible. In the end, the goal is to tell a more complete story about mass incarceration and mass criminalization in this country so that we can get a better sense and have a better idea of what the solutions might be. I think that when you look at policing and criminalization through the lens of women's experiences, you might get to the need to come up with different ways to produce safety a little bit more quickly. If you just look at men's experiences, you might think, oh, if we just decriminalize marijuana or decriminalize drugs or find alternate solutions to gang violence or do other kinds of prison reform, we might be able to solve these problems. And in fact, what a recent study by the Prison Policy Institute revealed is that our current approach to criminal justice reform is reducing the male prison population. But in some states, that reduction is eclipsed by the increase in the population of women in prison, such that that we're actually not making any gains because we're not paying attention to how women are becoming incarcerated or how they're staying incarcerated. And so that's why we need, there's many reasons, it's because black women's lives matter, period, indigenous women's lives matter, period, immigrant women's lives matter, period. And that's why we need to be looking at them, but also because we learn more about the scope of the problem and the shape of the solution when we look at these issues through the lens of women's experiences. There is a tremendous amount of police violence against pregnant people. And I describe a number of stories in the book of pregnant people being tased, of pregnant people being kicked and beaten or taken down face down on the ground. There are a number of just kind of harrowing stories about that. And I wish I could say they're sort of anomalies, but even I remember when I was writing the book, I read like one of those right-wing blogs, like Reason or something, where the writer was describing it as an epidemic of violence against pregnant people and just cited a rash of cases. And in Chicago, there was a case where a woman was standing on her stoop and saw a police officer chasing someone through the neighborhood and he wasn't able to catch the person and so she laughed, as any of us might do. But in her case, she was eight months pregnant. It was visibly pregnant, wearing a tight top, so it was there was no doubt about it. And he just walked up to her and straight up punched her really hard in her belly, which, when I tell that story, garners the reaction that you just had because it's so gratuitous, so awful. But what he said to her was, you black you're lucky I don't kill your baby. And so to me, that really just epitomizes 
the ways in which black motherhood is and, and black children are devalued. And now that they are no longer property that will increase some white person's capital, then they are literally of no value. And then a police officer can with impunity walk up to a black pregnant person and put her pregnancy in jeopardy. And I could tell you many other stories like that, but I won't. And I wish that I hadn't heard other officers hit black pregnant women and just say things straight up like, we don't like black pregnant women. So I think the way that police officers interact with black pregnant women, also with indigenous pregnant women, many instances where police officers have killed or harmed indigenous pregnant women, and immigrant pregnant women particularly, in some ways kind of intentionally to say, you know, we don't want you to, this is all anchor baby myth, right? That immigrant women come here to have babies that will then become a pathway to citizenship. And there are many instances in which immigration agents have placed immigrant women's pregnancies in jeopardy through physical violence or other kinds of deprivation that seem equally motivated by saying your pregnancy is a problem. Your pregnancy is transmitting deviance. Your pregnancy is um, invading this country. Your pregnancy is not desired and is, and is kind of a manifestation of uncontrolled, unregulated sexuality that we have to punish and control literally through violence. So that is the first aspect. I think once black women and women of color and indigenous women become parents, well, first, th- their pregnancy is also regulated in ways that even seem to contradict what I just described, which is that the war on drugs is waged very much on pregnant people. So when pregnant people go for prenatal care or to give birth, black women and women of color are disproportionately drug tested um, in those contexts, often without their consent. And so while rates of drug use across race seem to be roughly equivalent, in fact, white women might use more drugs while pregnant than black women do. In many states, black women are up to 10 times more likely to be drug tested when they go in for prenatal care or to deliver their babies, sometimes because they're more likely to go to public hospitals, but also even in private facilities. They're being racially profiled. It's literally being pregnant while black or giving birth while black. And then the response is not to offer any kind of support or treatment that they might need that they can go to with their current children or with as pregnant, it's to lock them up, supposedly to improve the health of the baby. But as everyone knows, the conditions in jail or prison are the worst for being pregnant or parenting. In one sense, the state is criminalizing black women and women of color and indigenous women. And they'll do this with indigenous women who they believe drink too much also, incarcerate them until they have their babies. So on the one level, they're incarcerating, criminalizing mothers of color in the name of protecting their children, while at the same time allowing police officers to directly harm their fetuses and directly harming their fetuses by incarcerating their parents or separating them from their parents immediately after birth. So it's this contradiction that's not really a contradiction because what Dorothy Roberts points out is that it's really just punishing them from being mothers, period. So if they can do it by harming their children in utero, fine. If they can do it by taking their children away from them, fine. If they can do it, you know, by any means necessary, basically. And then once black women, women of color have children, then their parenting is scrutinized by the state in very racially discriminatory ways, resulting in child welfare sort of being one of the primary pathways of criminalization and incarceration of black women and women of color. So some folks have dubbed that the new the new Jane Crow <laughs> to sort of point out that there's a way in which the criminalization of black women's parenting is pushing mass incarceration and creating a second class citizenship and parenthood for black mothers and, and their children. We don't think about the, the fact that when someone determines that a child needs to be taken away, the police are the ones who do it and sometimes 
committing physical and sometimes fatal violence against the mother. In other cases, we don't think about the fact that police are the ones who bring child welfare in. And that's a very common threat that police officers use against women, including to extort sex. Say, you know, I'm going to call child welfare on you unless you do what I ask you to do or tell you to do. Those calls are also very discriminatory, right? Like a police officer might see a child playing alone in a park and call child welfare right away. Whereas if it's a white mother, they're a white child, they might just go try and find the parent and say, you know, I just found your kid, I brought him home, done, right? And so we don't think about the role of the police in that process. And I think we need to start paying more attention to that. Black women are organizing on the south side of Chicago whose children are, have been put into the child welfare system in defense of themselves and each other through an organization called Black on Both Sides. And mothers are organizing, and people came out to organize when Kelly Williams Bullard was criminalized for sending her child to a school that her father lived in the school district and paid taxes in, you know? And people have organized in defense of mothers who, who are being criminalized for harm that police officers did to their children or harm that their abusive partners did to their children. So for instance, in Baton Rouge, an off-duty police officer was driving a car at 94 miles an hour, hit a car that was occupied by a black mom and her family and her daughter, killed the daughter. And now this black woman, mother, who just lost her child due to someone else's reckless driving is being criminalized because apparently they say she didn't, didn't have the child seat properly strapped in. This is how black mothers are treated and criminalized. People are starting to organize around that. And also people are starting to say, wait a minute, Baton Rouge, like you came out for Alton Sterling. How are you not coming out for this black mom who in her moment of worst grief is having to come up with bail to get out of prison and face these criminal charges? And so people have been organizing over years around the criminalization of pregnant people across the country and really being successful and you know right here in indiana people were successful also um in challenging the criminalization of pervy patel for losing her pregnancy and i think we're going to see a lot more of that unfortunately in this current political climate and i really applaud the folks who are organizing around these issues organizing around shackling of pregnant people while they're delivering babies there are organizations like sister song that are just killing it around the country sort of raising these issues and really making it clear that reproductive justice issues are issues that disproportionately impact black women and women of color and that that happens through the mechanism of criminalization and that that needs to be therefore a site of resistance for reproductive justice movements. And in many cases, whether it's Deborah Danner in New York City or Charlena Lyles in Seattle, Kayla Moore in Berkeley, people or who have been killed in the context of police responses to mental health crises has really sort of spurred a conversation, a vigorous debate and conversation about like, what are we doing sending people who only have three tools, cuffs, tasers and force like weapons a, a gun into a situation where someone is experiencing an alternate reality i mean this is just not that's not the way to go and that we need to find a different way to respond and unfortunately some of the ways that we've come up with involve just training police officers to apparently more you know better respond but you know then you look at cases like michelle Cousseau in phoenix who was killed by an officer who was cri- trained in crisis intervention training so i think There are other places like Eugene, Oregon, where people are literally saying, no, there should be a way when you call 911 that you can just go straight around the police and actually get someone who is really trained in dealing with people in mental health crisis, who is a professional in that respect and who can offer the kinds of patient, many hours, leaving, coming back, you know, uh, negotiation, 
weighting people's, you know, crisis out while making sure no one gets harmed kind of care that people need in those moments and also can deliver it in a way that respects their self-determination and agency as much as possible. Because it's important when we're thinking about alternative responses to policing that we don't turn to other carceral systems. And the mental health industry has certainly been one where, you know, cuffs or Haldol can feel the same and sometimes worse to someone, right, Um, as an antipsychotic drug that very much limits your ability to kind of function. So I think it's really people are forcing and thinking about more creative ways of responding to, to people in crisis. And I think that's, that's where the hope lies. And, you know, last night, Andrea was talking about what it means to create communities based on radical love and collectivity and fugitivity from the state, right? I'm just saying like this, everything about this is set up to commit violence against us. And Women's History Month and Black History Month <laughs> is the moment where we really have to confront that. And so saying, what what are we doing to create communities of care for each other and really feeling responsible when we see some mental health crisis to maybe get trained up? And so some folks in Oakland through the Oakland Power Project are just learning what we can learn as non-medical professionals about how to support someone in mental health crisis so that our first response isn't to call in the person or the institution that is most likely to kill them in that situation. And that our response is to radically care for each other in ways that hopefully one day will make it not that there's even only a handful of people who you can call in that situation, but actually everyone is trained to respond to that situation to some degree. Some of us might be better at it than others, but at least we'll know who to call and and that it will lead to genuine public safety as opposed to the figment of public safety that we have now that really just involves responding to situations with more violence and threats of violence. There's hope. People are doing really important work. And also people are doing really important work on the front end of the criminal legal system. And I I think that's an increasing trend, and it's one that I'm really trying to push and promote because I feel like for a long time, our attention, whether you're looking at the 13th or the new Jim Crow or kind of the ban the box efforts, and those are all critical and important efforts, you know, sentencing reform to sort of reduce the harm of the system as it's currently set up and get people out of cages more quickly and make sure they have more support when they are released. But I just don't want people to be in them in the first place. I just don't want anyone, to, I don't want a six-year-old to have a police encounter ever in the first place. Certainly, I don't want them to be arrested in their school for throwing a temper tantrum. But I just, you know, want there to be other responses to situations so that we don't end up then having to come up with strategies and campaigns to pull people out of cages, right, and to support them when they're released from them. So I think there is more and more a move to sort of figure out on the front end, what are we being locked up for? And why? And what needs are not being met that are producing whatever behaviors it is we've decided that we need to criminalize and lock people up for? And that, again, is a much more complicated thing than passing one bill that says, okay, the sentence for this is now less as opposed to more, or you can get more good time, or it's about figuring out really what kind of society we want to live in, what kind of values we want to have, and then how do we want to embody and manifest those every day. And that in some ways is the harder work, but it's also the more joyful work because it's really about dreaming the world that we want to be in and then really trying to make it real today and doing that in creative ways and ways that are full of joy and love and difficult moments, challenging, but also using our creativity to move through them. And I think that to me feels so much more exciting, even though it feels so much more challenging because colonization and capitalism have destroyed our imaginations, right, in some ways, then 
the work I've done for much of the past 20 years of like trying to get, you know, legislation passed that then eventually it'll be watered down and then, you know, it'll solve one problem, but then the system will just find another way to do the same thing using a different law. Or when you realize, for instance, you know, like with Priya, which I was part of advocating around, I wasn't advocating for it, but I was trying to figure out how to address certain populations' experiences of it, um, LGBT people specifically, realizing in the end it's being used against people again who it's intended to protect, right? That, you know, women experience tremendous levels of sexual assault in prison, and somehow Priya is being used to punish them for hugging each other, to comfort each other in a moment of grief or, or difficulty, or for having purely consensual relationships in a situation where they may never see the outside of a cage again. It's just a lesson in like, maybe we need to be going about this a little bit more differently. And, and maybe there's more hope and joy in pursuing more effective, even though they're longer term or harder responses to the current crisis. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.